My name is Josh. I am Buddhist pastor, teacher of Dharma Punks New York for the last going on now 17 years. And I guess before I jump right in, I'll just note that if you'd like to or care to support my work, uh, you are invited to, if it's financially available, don't feel pressured at all. But if you would like to support the work of a Buddhist pastor who does everything entirely by donations, then the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. And on the Dharma Punks with an X, nyc.com website there's a paypal button so that's about it that's my pitch for self-sustenance and tonight's theme which is the impulse to self-sabotage self-annihilate self-destruct so from the very foundations of buddhism the first noble truth the buddha teaches that in life there is old age sickness death and separation from the love, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. So the Buddha doesn't say that that's all life is, but he wants to remind us that old age sickness, deaths are not personal, they happen to everyone, and that they're inevitable. So the attempt to skirt it, avoid these experiences, will always lead to disappointment. As one friend recently put it, in life, pain is the only thing you get free refills of. So for most of us, when we experience even a flash of discomfort, a, a feeling of anxiety, a sense of uh, dorsal dive, this kind of depression, uh, uh, fleeting sense of dread, we immediately crave a way out. We crave something that will push painful emotions, painful feelings in the body away. That's one of the Buddha's most, probably the most fundamental teaching that when we experience what the Buddha calls dukkha or a painful experience, the next thing that happens is craving. We crave something that will get rid of our pain. And that craving in Buddhism is called tanha. No need to know that, but that's the original Pali term. So the Buddha said there's three different kinds of craving. There's three ways we try to escape the inevitable pains, sorrows, separations, losses of life. By far and away, the most common is uh, craving immediate short-term pleasures to distract us from pain. We seek food, sex, shopping, uh, TV, social media, Netflix. Many people uh, latch on to escapist ideas, fantasies of, uh, of being elsewhere, or um, any kind of escape, any kind of behavior that just immediately switches us out of awareness of our discomfort. For some, that can be, of course, taking a drink or uh, consuming uh, drugs or uh, for some people, it's switching on a video game and so forth. So craving short-term immediate pleasures that over the course of life, as we look back, don't make us feel any sense of pride, that become addictive, that in no way really fully alleviate the pain. They just kick the can down the road and we experience the pain later. But that's the first way we try to deal with pain is craving an immediate short-term pleasure. The second way we respond to pain and sorrow, lamentation, disappointment, being stuck with situations or people we can't deal with or don't like is what the Buddha called seeking a perfected state of being, bhavatana, 
a state where we'll be immune to suffering, a perfected sense of self, self-improvement, trying to get to or achieve a pure state of being that will we'll never have to experience pain. And of course, the Buddha says that's a fantasy. It leads to disappointment. There is no such state in life, no matter how you live it, there's going to be sorrow, lamentation, old age sickness, death, separation from people and things you love. There's going to be being stuck with situations and people you don't care for, there's going to be frustrating events. So trying to find a perfect state of being, uh, trying to perfect ourselves in a way that we don't experience any form of suffering is a fantasy and it'll lead to nothing but disappointment. But tonight's talk is on the third way out, the third kind of craving, the third way we respond to pain, and that's called vibhavatana, vibhavatana, craving non-existence, annihilation, a way to end pain for good by ending our awareness or consciousness. So it's pretty obvious that this theme is not the kind of theme that most uh, Buddhist teachers run to give talks about it's a little bit goth ain't it but uh i'm still gonna go for it because hell i'm a dharma punk so this is what i do and uh another reason that makes it very difficult for uh buddhist teachers to give a talk on this is because the buddha doesn't really ever explain it the buddha explains uh short-term sensory pleasures all throughout the Pali Canon. He also explains the drawbacks of seeking a perfected eternal state of being, but the Buddha never unpacks craving non-existence, vibhavatana. So there's not actually a whole hell of a lot to go or to base uh, a uh, a concrete theory upon unless we do some exploring. Now, from one perspective, a fundamental theme in the Dharma is what's called the union of opposites. And this is big in, it's been an important theme throughout the history of philosophy, starting with Heraclitus up to it reached its apex with Hegel. The union of opposites is what is the basic gist of it is, is that for any concept or idea or category to have any meaning or existence, there has to be its exact opposite. If we don't have a contrasting principle a thing in itself can't have any meaning. Now let's unpack that for a moment because that's pretty dense to wrap our heads around. The idea that us would have no meaning unless there was a concept of them. If we didn't have a concept of them, us would be meaningless. Uh, if we didn't have a concept of down, up, would have no meaning. If we don't have a concept of right, left has no meaning. If we don't have a concept of evil, good has no meaning, and so on and so forth. To have an idea or an identity or any kind of meaning, you have to have its exact opposite. Okay, that's the union of opposites, and that is fundamental not just to Hegel, but also to Ferdinand de Saussure and the founding of modern linguistics. And it's big in uh, continental philosophy. Major 20th century philosophers like Derrida said, if whenever we embrace or cherish something, it brings to mind the exact opposite. So if we really crave and look for and enshrine honor as a guiding principle in our life, we'll be prone to seeing disloyalty everywhere. 
if uh, we believe that purity is the most um, important thing to pursue, that we'll see its opposite everywhere. So this theme that wherever there's an idea, its exact opposite is brought into existence, it's very key. And in the Buddha's teaching of the eight worldly winds, it's fundamental. The Buddha says whenever we chase pleasure, we're more aware and more akin to suffering pain. Whenever we chase financial gain, we're more likely to be have our awareness heightened of times we don't have financial gain, when we have financial loss. If we chase after praise, will become much more susceptible and emotionally triggered by blame. Anything we chase after creates its exact opposite. So the Buddha knew that in having a lust for life, bhavatana, or an eternal self, that would create its exact opposite, a craving for annihilation. So, if that's, that seems like a likely explanation for why Vibhavatana exists, there are, of course, other theories, but um, let's move on. The Buddha's teaching of Vibhavatana did not, uh, uh, even though it's a difficult theory, it, it did have important ramifications in philosophy a very important Western uh, philosopher, Schopenhauer, in 1818 wrote a, a massively uh, influential book called The World is Will and Representation. Uh, and this was uh, one of the sort of foundings of, of, of nihilism and existentialist thought. And uh, in it, Schopenhauer was influenced by the Buddha, who read the, Buddha, the Dharma and who was deeply influenced by its themes, noted that in life, we, ha the, we have this will to live, and that's the fundamental for him principle or drive of all human beings, a fixation to live. But in so doing, Schopenhauer said, that creates its exact opposite. For in seeking life, we become aware of the aging, the loss, the sickness, the separation from friends, the disconnection uh, from things we want. And so this lust for life as a corollary, ironically, creates its exact opposite. Now, due partially to Schopenhauer, Freud, uh, incorporated his own annihilation drive in the principles of his theory of mind. At first, Freud, in his pleasure principle, basically taught that the most primitive unconscious mind, what he called the id, or just our unconscious core drives, were for things like hunger, lust, aggression, and in infancy, a craving for care or connection with a, a, a parent. All of these core needs, the Buddha, I mean, Freud said, <laughs> were driven by also a desire for them to be experienced as pleasurably as possible without any pain. So at first there was no annihilation or death instinct in Freud's teaching. But then in 1920, at the age of 64, about 20 years after, or you know, around roughly 20 years after the Freud's, Freud's break through with, uh, which was the interpretation of dreams, Freud added into his theory, a destructive impulse, an impulse he said, to return to an earlier state, or what is now known, or what he called the death drive. The death drive for Freud opposes our life-enhancing quest for 
uh, pleasure and life. Uh, it works in opposition to our libidinal lust. It works in opposition to all the other drives. For Freud, this uh, drive to annihilate, to self-destruct, was the greatest obstacle to civilization. And some might argue that our willful uh, inability to address climate catastrophe is or could be viewed in the light as a kind of self-destructive impulse in civilization and in the human disposition. For Freud, it even seemed, if you read Beyond the Pleasure Principle, that the death instinct was a desire to experience a unique, personalized death, just as we all seek to experience a life that's unique and our own and personalized. We also seek a death that has those same characteristics. Now, to say the very least, uh, this was not an idea that was greeted warmly in a lot of uh, psychological, psychoanalytical circles. In fact, many of Freud's followers from Ernest Jones to the object relations school of Klein and Fairburn and uh, then Winnicott and Bowlby, so many great psychologists utterly found this idea to be abhorrent and uh, repugnant and refused to uh, in any way embrace it. And so uh, for a while, it laid pretty dormant. But for Freud, this was a very, a theme he returned to at the, towards the end of his years, the last, say, 20 years of his life. And he maintained that in our unconscious, there just as much as there's a drive for pleasure, you know, experiences, there's a self-destructive desire to return to a state without consciousness. And many have added on, why else or how else can we explain suicide, opioid abuse, people who run from safety and care to and run to those who are abusive and violent? Well, how else can we explain extreme risk-taking in life, self-harm? Uh, how else can we explain the depressive urge to sleep away life and so forth? We even see self-destructive tendencies at times where after breakups, rather than seeking warm uh, connections of friends who support us, many people isolate and go on Facebook and stalk their exes and look for images of their exes with someone new. It's almost as if there's desire to re-experience pain. Some people gamble not to win, but they keep gambling until they lose everything. Again, there seems to be in the human uh, character some self-destructive impulses. Now, some argue back that suicidal attempts are simply impulses to end pain, that they're not really an attempt to die or annihilate. They're just a momentary urge to end extreme psychological pain, um, just as dissociation and checking out helped people survive traumas in one's unconscious psychic universe, that annihilation is a variation of simply seeking to numb and not experience pain. Um, a death drive from other perspectives is completely inconsistent with the teachings of evolution and Darwin. 
our innate dispositions to exist uh, is to maximize our potential to pass on our genes. Darwin conceived of evolution as the gradual accumulation of traits that would help us adapt to environments so that we could produce more of our species. So what possible role could self-annihilation serve? And yet Darwin's view was far more complex than that. In fact, Darwin wrote in uh, 1859 that from war, famine, and death, that's how higher animals like uh, us, essentially he saw us as higher animals, are produced. So he believed that there was some role that destruction played in our evolution. It's almost as if annihilation for Darwin at times was one of the ways our species evolved so quickly that we kill off or obliterate the traits in us that are mal maladaptive. So eventually we refine ourselves to a higher state of being. At other times, Darwin, though, doubted that and couldn't find any role or couldn't understand why we have such self-destructive tendencies in our species. So what follows is going to be some psychological uh, explanations of the self-annihilation impulses that we see. I'm going to give three. And then we're going to use some of the tools that follow in our meditation. So how can we explain um, the, the self-annihilation or death drive in us? Well, one psychologist, uh, individual Bill Swan, has what's called a self-validation theory. And in it, he believes that one of our great impulses is to have others see us the way we see ourselves, to ensure that others will conform, confirm our beliefs about ourselves. If we have a negative view of ourselves, which were instilled, no doubt, in early life by peers or family systems or uh, other adults or siblings will find others in life who will dislike, mistreat, and will validate our low sense of self. And even our actions that we undertake will validate this damaged sense of self. Now, a more common explanation we can find in the work of people like uh, Eric Byrne and John Mills, who noted that, and so many others, that the strongest case for a death drive lies in what's called repetition compulsion. Now, what's that? Repetition compulsion is the tendency we have to recreate painful experiences that occurred earlier in life, especially in childhood. We these painful experiences literally can shape our survival strategies, shape the way we view the world, shape our dispositions, shape our innate beliefs about ourselves and others. So if a child's need for soothing wasn't met, their instincts will be shaped to disregard their own needs. And this will be evidenced in adult life as a lack of self-care, we won't, we'll eat poorly, we'll overwork, we'll fail to seek help for health issues, we'll avoid exercise, we'll gravitate to situations that are emotionally unhealthy, including isolation. For those who were uh, neglected, they will gravitate in adult life to partners who will neglect or are emotionally distant. For those who were mistreated, they'll gravitate or are likely to gravitate towards abusive partners in life. Again, it seems that 
our unconscious right hemisphere and midbrains are shaped by and many the early experiences of life and so we unconsciously gravitate towards similar situations because our survival strategies match those situations freud believed uh, for a while that we gravitate to recreate the most painful events of life our childhood our abandonments our mistreatment our neglect our um or our engulfment because we want to master these situations we want to figure out how to we want to win this time in adult life but when the death drive came into his theory he focused on repetition compulsion as an example very often of that self-annihilation instinct so if we take this theory to heart fundamental to changing a damaged sense of self and to address a self-destructive impulse would be to change our unconscious models that were established in childhood and we do this by uh, creating a secure base now how do we do that in adult life if we didn't have it in childhood well there's a lot of evidence today in what's called secure priming we visualize people who have been kind we move or graduate gravitate towards people who are nurturing and caring and emotionally attentive so we're changing our innate views of self and other by changing our actual experience with others in buddhism this is called kalyanamita gravitating to wise spiritual friends buddha sati visualizing the buddha in our mind or a buddha-like figure that is nurturing and caring deva nusati visualizing protective spirits that are ever available soothing present and appreciate us so that's one set of tools we'll be exploring in the meditation another is theory of why we have a self-annihilation instinct is alice miller we find alice miller dan siegel lewis casalino countless other trauma uh specialists and so forth and the idea is that the self-annihilation drive is a byproduct of trauma so it's related to our other theories but this one is a little bit different so in childhood we depend on our parents for survival even the smallest rejections can feel life-threatening and when these events occur children blame themselves as they can't afford to conclude that their caregivers aren't suitable they prefer to blame themselves for their experiences of neglect and abuse because at least that gives them a hope of figuring it out so there's a real though uh, challenge for children during frightening experience in fact three challenges one is that our prefrontal cortex that helps us make sense of life experience isn't fully wired it's very difficult to turn a negative painful experience into a story that has a beginning a middle and an end so the events remain unresolved two conscious memory formation of the hippocampus isn't wired so we're not even really capable of forming memories that we can voluntarily recall and address and process early childhood experiences are forgotten largely they are lost to explicit memory and yet that brings us to point number three early childhood experiences are stored but stored unconsciously or implicitly the amygdala the the essentially mobilized emotionally salient 
fear uh, region of the brain can store uh, fear survival memories where feelings and impulses are stored as what could be called time capsules and they're stored unconsciously we can't remember them really consciously but they can return as feelings and impulses when unconscious survival memories return they return as while we're consciously aware that we're an adult and that it's 2022 uh that but we're now living in a, our unconscious or right brain is living in an entirely different time period a time period during a trauma, an abandonment, uh, a time we were treated poorly. And so we go into a kind of trance-like state where inclinations to self-harm are ritually enacted. People will cut themselves in trance-like states where they're unaware of time passing. They don't even really truly fully feel the pain People will consume opioids and linger in trance-like states of a lack of, of consciousness. People will engage in extreme alcohol binges. People gravitate uh, to dissociative drugs like ketamine or psychoactive hypo hypnotics like Ambien and Halcyon that induce sleep. People, on the other hand, will engage in trance-like states where they consume stimulants like crystal meth and engage in anonymous sex. People will engage in perilous thrill-seeking, driving well over 100 miles per hour at night, walking on the ledges of buildings, pushing oneself beyond safety, even in... Uh, sports that can be safe some people with uh, self-destructive impulses will push their skills beyond the limits in riding a motorcycle or snowboarding etc or rock climbing they'll push themselves where their very existence lies in the mix so the key to addressing this kind of trance like ritual self-harm behaviors is to immerse oneself in present time sensations and to really fully engage the left hemisphere to override the right hemispheres um, being consumed by emotions and feelings and impulses from the past. And we can do this by practicing as many Tra uh, trauma th uh, therapists recommend some form of mindfulness. Mindfulness of body sensations as a way to break out of a trance-like state or immersing oneself in present time sensations, uh, orienting to what's called safety cues. So we might look around our environment. We might become aware of different colors. We might list all the colors or sounds around us. We might find a soothing visual object and rest our uh, gaze upon it. We might, or for an internal anchor, we might squinch our toes or we might make fists and grab our knees, anything to keep us grounded and oriented to the present to remove us from the trance-like state so with that my voice is giving out so what i'm actually going to do is lead a meditation now that um, uh, will address these uh these two tools that we talked about one uh mindfully staying present so that we can remove ourselves from any uh trance-like self-harm routines and two we're also going to do a secure priming where we visualize secure figures secure experiences so that we can undo a damaged sense of self so <clears throat> i hope that that talk was of some interest 
And uh, I like you now to, or invite you now to find a really comfortable position. Uh, uh, you can lie down if you want or sit in your most comfortable chair. You can do anything you want that will encourage a sense of ease. And I'm going to also invite you to close your eyes. That will help our practices. And I'm going to have a sip of water while you do that. <clears throat> so bringing the attention in to the body, reeling it back in, and see if you can lower it into the body. When we dissociate, get lost in thought, check out, there's this feeling of attention moving up out of the top of the head almost and floating out of the body. So when people are really dissociative or checked out or lost in thought, they don't even really have any sense of embodiment. They don't even really feel like consciousness is something that is has a body. They feel kind of floaty. And so we want to counteract that by bringing our awareness in, and we also want to lower it down. So bringing in and lowering it down. So one way you can do this is by creating a sensation in your body, if you like, to just create a sensation to ground your sensation your attention, I should say. So you can squinch your toes or you could tighten the muscles in the calves or you could squinch the buttocks or contract the belly and just use that as a internal sensation to try to lower your awareness towards. The idea is not to only experience consciousness as up in the head, but to become fully embodied, which means not just aware of the thoughts floating or bouncing around, but to let go of focusing on self-talk inner chatter and focusing instead on the sensations arising and passing of the body. The body can be a constellation of sensations much akin to a night sky flickering of tingling, muscle contractions and release, slight movements, feelings of numbness or discomfort. And of course, there's the primary, most visible, form in the night sky, which would be the breath in the body, that movement of breathing in, expanding upward energy, and then the release of the exhalation the return, the collapse, the out-breath, 
So it might be easiest for some simply to orient to the movement of energy starting in the abdomen, moving up to the chest, and then peaking and then being released, and then the belly collapsing. And, of course, thoughts will continue to arise, and by their very nature, thoughts are ways to orient attention, so they'll try to grab hold and refocus us towards issues that aren't present. And so one way to respond is to just note these thoughts and then cultivate a thought about what's happening right here and right now, how to make yourself as comfortable and easeful as possible. What can you let go of? What can you adjust? So banishing or pushing away the thoughts about the past or dread about the future with thoughts about the present or another approach is simply to bring your awareness back to the sensory stimuli of the present, opening up to what you're feeling right now, just this. And just practice every time you wander away from a home in the present sensations of the body. Just make your return as pleasant as possible. Land or return your awareness to the most pleasant sensation, whether it's in the palms of the hands or some part of your body that feels really easeful and just relax and soften. Every time we drift off into thought, the body contracts a little bit defensively. So when you return 
it can be concomitant with a sensation of letting go, releasing.
So at this point, bring to mind the image, if you can visualize in your mind's eye, the image of someone associated with attention or care or kindness. And just hold the image of them looking at you with a look expressing attentiveness and welcome. Someone who delights in your existence. This could be a real figure. This could be a Buddha-like figure. This could be an angelic-like figure, a figure from the past. If you struggle to visualize people in your mind's eye or recollect people in your mind's eye, you can simply repeat softly the name of someone associated with care or a simple phrase, I am loved, I am cared for. I am seen. Very simple phrases are the ones that the emotional mind can understand. If you'd like, put a hand on your heart center to stimulate a sense of warmth and connection, courtesy of our vagal nerve. Just resting the hand on either the heart or the belly or on the neck, back of the neck or the forehead. Just steeping the mind in uh, internal creation of a attachment or a bonding or a connected experience. Now for our second set of tools, orienting to safety or grounding. When we are becoming lost in a kind of trance-like liminal dissociative state, You can do these practices either with, either with your eyes closed, working with sounds and body sensations, or with your eyes open, working with visual cues. If you're going to keep your eyes closed, just take a moment and squinch your toes or create a sensation in your body to orient you to the present 
and at the same time pay attention to every sound present in your immediate environment that you can discern. And for this practice, you can either just keep listening to sounds as if there's some obscure form of music, or you can list the sounds, label the sounds, sound of a heater, sound of cars outside, sounds of people talking on a street, sounds of the room, and so forth. Just orienting oneself to the present. And if you'd like to practice with visual cues, simply open your eyes and rest it on a single present time object in your environment that's soothing, a window, a plant, art, a shrine, an image, something in your environment, and just rest your gaze on this and just really try to drink it in, savor it as much as you can in as much detail. And you can practice sometimes closing your, your eyes and seeing if you can recreate this visual cue, this safety cue, and then reopen your eyes. If you have a candle or an incense, focusing on that, really trying to observe it with a relaxed yet detailed awareness. We're going to uh, bring our practice this evening in this portion of the gathering to a close. So take your time in this uh, gradually, incrementally, as you want, just very slowly let go of internal the primary focus on internal awareness, 
and balance awareness now between what's going on around you, inside of you, mixing with an attentiveness to any kind of reflection or thought that is warranted. And uh, thanking you for listening in your practice and for any uh, support you can offer.